It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Well, welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and thanks for uh, allowing us and sharing part of your time to to join us. I, I really do appreciate it. I think you're really going to enjoy this. We're going to talk about the news, and then, of course, we're going to highlight the stupid because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. No shortage of material there. And then we're going to sit down with Steve Moore. Steve's actually going to join me. We get to sit side by side. Uh, You've seen him on Fox News. You've seen him all over the place because Steve is uh, one of the smartest, brightest minds on the economy, on the budget, on our debt deficit. Um, Just a fascinating guy, always full of energy. I mean, never Steve Moore never lacks for energy, that's for sure. But he's one of the most important thinkers about how do we spend this federal money out there and has been ringing the alarm bells for a long, long time about the massive uh, federal spending that has been going on uh, at the federal government. It's just it's just so out of control. So we're going to learn a lot more about Steve and his growing up and uh, how he how Steve Moore became Steve Moore really is what we're going to be talking about. And uh, maybe we'll highlight some of the. The problems that this country is facing, but I think you're really going to enjoy that. But let's talk about a few things in the news, and these happened uh, a little while ago. But again, I'd like to reflect on them and then come back and then talk about them a little bit. And you know, at Stanford, you had this federal judge, uh, Kyle Duncan, invited to address students at Stanford. I don't know if you've seen the video. Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Um, but one of the most rude um, audiences that you can you can possibly imagine. Um, even the diversity person uh, from Stanford was there in the front row. You can see her kind of chuckling at some of the the remarks that were being made. And then she did this approximately six-minute introduction talking about how wrong and how how wrong he was on so many things. And that's just, I'm being soft and nice by saying that. Um, and he was just shouted down to the point that he left and wasn't able to give his his full remarks. Now, there is a room for dissent in this country, um, but I find it ironic that the people who continually preach diversity, that uh, preach inclusion, um, are usually the first ones in line to suppress free speech and to suppress people's uh, ability to express a viewpoint. And here you have a distinguished federal judge talking to a law school that's supposedly one of the most prestigious in the country, but it really does make you wonder, are they really that prestigious anymore? The Wall Street Journal wrote an op-ed about this, uh, what they call the heckler's veto, and that Part of free speech is listening to that speech that probably makes you the most uncomfortable. Now, I don't think people should have to sit through lewd speech. I don't think there are certain things that they should have to um, uh, listen to, but they can always turn the channel. They can always not show up. They can always walk away. But to heckle somebody um, who is there as a federal judge talking about the law and our future and his view on Americanism 
why why is it the conservative viewpoints, people that believe in religion, people that believe in in fiscal discipline, people who believe in some of the social issues that maybe the other side doesn't, they shouldn't just be canceled and shut down. Now, Stanford has tried to claw this back over the last few weeks, um, and hopefully they learned a lesson. But I worry that we have a whole nother generation of entitled uh, people, young people, who haven't learned the value of work. They haven't learned the value of respect. They haven't learned the value of how to treat other people. They've been buried in social media, and I don't want to give a sweeping generalization that disparages an entire generation, but there are. what I'm saying is there are too many people who have this sense of entitlement and immediacy that, you know, delayed gratification, hard work. These are not principles that they're necessarily taught that wokeism has taken over. And it's just a deep concern. And I'm glad to see this Stanford issue continue to play out because I think it is um, something that we all must address. Uh, other thing that's in my in the news that uh, caught my attention here. Because I think this is a bigger, broader problem. I, I tell you, I've spent a lot of time with law enforcement, the men and women who put their lives on the line to come to the aid of people who need it and need it right away is just unbelievable. The dispatchers who take those calls and deal with a frantic situation, life or death situation, and do so in a calm, collective manner to pass that information to officers or fire departments or ambulances that are in response to, you know, make sure that the hospital is prepared. Those people are just amazing because they may be sitting around twiddling their thumbs and then all of a sudden something horrific happens and they have to deal with it in a calm, cool, collective manner and sometimes try to teach somebody how to do CPR or get somebody breathing again uh, over the phone. Uh, Talk about pressure. I I love these people. But there is a Texas couple that expressed outrage. They saw this over on foxnews.com. That evidently that more than once, the Austin Police Department there in Texas took more than two hours, two hours to respond to 911 calls about a vehicle that was hit head on by an alleged drunk driver. Now, the allegation is that in those subsequent two hours, the people that were supposedly intoxicated, that they were able to dry out a little bit and and that that was a concern, that the response rate. Now, this is, again, one of the consequences when you degrade and you have so many police officers leave because this community, the uh, political leaders don't support the police department. And it's just something that I think is going to continue to play out, and it has to be addressed because people who are committing these crimes should be held accountable. But if you have a two-hour response time to get somebody in a involved in a collision, a head-on collision with with, with supposedly somebody who who might have been intoxicated, um, but maybe they weren't. You know, maybe they weren't. You never will know because it took so long for the law enforcement to get there and uh, to address the situation. Last thing I wanted to uh, mention in the news, uh, it's kind of a fun thing. You know, there's this um, weight meter, I call it. And the weight meter is who's going to run for president, who's not going to run for president. And usually 
you can tell if somebody's going to run for president or not by who's losing weight and who's gaining weight. And uh, so Pierce Morgan uh, from Fox News was able to sit down with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis and ask him about his weight loss. I'm not saying I have any special inside information. I'm just saying if those that are losing weight are likely candidates for the presidency, Ron DeSantis is on that list because he's lost weight. He said he's lost the weight by cutting out sugar and doing some better exercise. Now, the guy was a college athlete. I don't know if you knew that, but Governor DeSantis, back when he was just Ron DeSantis, uh, played baseball uh, at Yale and was a pretty good catcher back in the day. But he said he's doing a better job of cutting out sugar, that his wife's helping him with that. But look who lost weight. Mike Pompeo lost weight. Ron DeSantis lost weight. Trey Gowdy's gained weight. So, you know, there's no reason to think that he is actually going to be running for president, given how porky he's become lately. So uh, you can tell who's running just by where they are on the weight scale. Uh, That's my take on it. All right, let's bring on the stupid, because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. I saw this on on Twitter. Uh, CWB Chicago, their Twitter feed, and I love the way they frame this. Smart. Giving a car dealership a fake driver's license before you carjack their salesman on a test drive. Not smart. Putting your real driver's license picture on the fake ID. So evidently what happened is they, they they created this fake idea with this driver's license and picture, but he used the same picture. Maybe that wasn't so smart. Anyway, they tried to supposedly, the allegation is, steal this Land Rover, but they were able to capture him pretty quickly. Oh, uh, not the smartest criminal we've ever heard of. All right. And then uh, the other one are Biden gaffes. They're probably better if we just play the audio, but when you read the text of them, they, they almost illuminate the problem, the challenge. I mean, it's beyond comical at this point. They're just downright stupid. But I worry that it's a symptom of the cognitive decline of our current president. One of the quotes that he said was that he likes babies better than people. Likes babies better than people. Oh, my gosh. Mr. President, come on. And on gun control, he said he wants to keep guns away from, quote, domestic political advisors. (laughs) I don't know what the president's talking about, but that was the quote. Domestic political advisors. Ah, Mr. President, you were bringing on the stupid yet again. Let's bring in our first guest. I'm thrilled to sit down with him. So let's talk to Steve Moore. Like I said, uh, we're thrilled to have Steve Moore joining us in person. Usually we do these on the fo- on the phone to phone a friend, and but not sure that you would pick up the phone if I called. So um, I'm glad to do this in person. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Great to see you, and uh, we've known each other a long time. Yeah, we back have. From when we're in Congress, Agreed. and good to be here in the Fox Studios. Well, look, I, I've I've watched in awe because your mastery of numbers and the economy and federal government and everything is just, you know, it it really is impressive. But I want to kind of, before we get into the problems of today, Mm -hmm. I want to get back to how Steve became Steve. (laughs) And so let's go back to start with like, I was born in, and like, I really want to go way, way back. You know, brothers, sisters, life, what was it like growing up? 
Yeah. So uh, I grew up outside of the Chicago area in the Chicago suburbs. I was born in 1960 and have four brothers and sisters. We're an Irish Catholic uh, you know, family. And by the way, when I was growing up, you know, there were families in my neighborhood – you know, five. You think five today? It's like five kids. That's a big family. No, no. You know, there were kids. This this family has eight kids, and the Dwyers have nine kids. And uh, you know, those were the right. days of big families. But um, you know, I grew up in that Chicago area. I, you know, when I was in high school, I practically grew up in Wrigley Field because we used to play hooky. Did you ever see the movie Ferris Day, Bueller's Day Off? Where, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, he goes Ferris Bueller goes up to watch the um, Cubs in Wrigley Field, and the truancy officer is chasing him around. That was that was us in high school. But I loved. I still have a great love for Chicago. It really pains me, um, Jason, to see how liberalism has just destroyed that great city. Right. It used to be the sh- city that works, and now it's the city that doesn't work. So uh, I still have great affection for the city, and I, I really hope that it doesn't die. So how far liberalism. outside of the city were you? I grew up in the North Shore area uh-huh. of Chicago, so we used to jump on the L. Remember that back then, you know, I'm a little older than you think because I'm 63. Back then, the uh, Wrigley Field did not have lights, so all the games were played in oh. the afternoon. So we would jump on the L, and we'd you know, go and and uh, and watch those games, and you know, grew up a Bears fan and Blackhawks fan, and still am to this day, even though I haven't lived in Chicago for. Did you 30 play years. sports growing up at all? Yeah, I love sports. I mean, I'm not I'm not great. I was a tennis player. I, I liked I love basketball, but I'm five nine and a half. <laughs> it's hard to be a great basketball player. But my family, we grew up, you know, sports all What'd the time. What your parents do? All the time. Pardon? What did your parents do? So my dad was a businessman. You know, uh, you know he uh, was an international businessman, and um, you know he was su- quite successful in building his small business. And he, you know, we used to uh, laugh. Where's dad? You know, always he was gone half the time. You know, traveling yeah, on that hard. business yeah. and built it up. And and I always get so angry. By the way, when people I think of somebody like my dad who really did spend his whole life building that business from scratch, and it became successful, a multi-million dollar business. And then when he dies, wait a minute, the government's going to take half of it away from him? I've right. always hated yeah. the state. To, not, and by the way, I never wanted my dad's money. You know, I, I was blessed with great parents, but I, I didn't have, I didn't want my dad's money, but I don't want the government to take it. You know, right. I don't want right. the government to take away someone's whole lifetime. You spend a whole lifetime paying taxes, then you die and you have to pay another tax. So, um, you know, that that was my dad. And my mom, by the way, was a championship golfer. She, really? she, she was a fantastic golfer. She won 11 club championships. And uh, so I, my one regret, Jason, is that, you know, we live next to a golf course. So I could have played golf anytime I wanted to. And. You know, now as you get older, you know, you play golf. And I wish I played more golf and less basketball because my golf game stinks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, golf and tennis are really kind of the two sports you could play the rest exactly. of your life. I like pickleball. I'm in the pickleball. Yeah, that's that's pickleball. even more popular now than tennis. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's so fun. So now you're you're going to school. When did you find out that you had sort of this penchant for numbers, like you understood yeah. numbers better than maybe your classmates did? Well, I was I was your basic C student. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, this is one of my pet peeves. And, you know, I was hyperactive. I don't know about you, Jason. When I was in, I had a hard time sitting through class. You know, I was like bouncing off the walls. They would have given me Ritalin back then. <laughs> if, uh, but um, so I didn't, I never really started taking school seriously until I got to be about 16 or 17 years old. You know, I, was it just too easy for you? Or no, you it wasn't easy care? for me. I just didn't have any interest in it. You know, yeah. I wanted to be, a, you know, um, hitting the baseball and, you know, that kind of thing. But I've always been anti authoritarian 
you know, in other words, I don't want people telling me what to do. Right. You know, right. I believe in live and let live. And that's been my overall philosophy. I'm very libertarian. Uh-huh. I, you know, I, if, if, I, if what I do is not hurting you or not hurting your property, then you don't have a, any business telling me what I right. should do. Right. You know, that's a very basic American you're principle. Not impe- yeah. If you're not impeding on somebody else's American dream, then yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I hate, I always hated rules and regulations, you know, it was embedded in my DNA. And so, uh, and then, you know, out of high school, I, when I got to college, University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, I don't know if you've ever been there, Jason, but it's a brick in a cornfield. And um, that's, then I started taking, you know, school and academics seriously. And I really dug in and- So, okay, way, so, so when you get there, what, what, did you know that you were going to kind of go down? So I'll tell you this, it's a really kind of- it, you know, it is so interesting as I look back on my life, and I've really been blessed. Great parents, great neighborhood, great family, uh, and it seemed like every time I reached, you know, a fork at the road, you know, I something good. It was almost like, you know, and I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying I feel blessed, you know, right, that, right. that that these opportunities came. So when I was a um, junior in college, I, you know, like most 20 year olds, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, right. and I met a professor who changed my life, and that professor is was a, a, a man by the name of Julian Simon. And I don't know if you know who Julian Simon was, um, Jason, no. but Julian was, uh, well, how old are you? Uh, my birthday, just had the birthday. Yeah. 56. Okay, so you're a little bit younger than I am. Uh, I grew up in the era of like the mid-70s and early 70s when it was all doom and gloom. The world was coming to right. end. The world's going to be overpopulated. Paul Ehrlich was a fam- the most famous academic of that age. And he, t- he wrote a famous book called The Population Bomb, that the world was soon, we're all going to live this Malthusian uh, subsistence level existence. And we're running out of oil, running out of food, we're running out of everything. Right. And we got to stop procreating, you know. And, um, and that's what everybody believed. And Julian Simon came along, and I met him just by chance, and he wrote a very famous book called The Ultimate Resource. Do you know what The Ultimate Resource is? No. The human mind. Yeah. Because all that we have, all innovation, all business, all the resources that we have really derive from human ingenuity. And uh, Julian basically proved that, no, we're not running out of oil, gas, coal, because human ingenuity and new ways of finding things and doing things always improve faster than, uh, especially in a free enterprise system. And he blew the, and he made a very famous bet with Paul Ehrlich, uh, who was the number one, you know, scientist of the day, saying, "I'll bet you in ten years the price of all these natural resources is going to fall, not rise." And it became very famous. It was Julian Simon versus Paul Ehrlich, and he even said to Paul Ehrlich, "You can choose whatever five resources you want." And I'll bet you in 10 years' time, they'll be cheaper. By the way, if something is cheaper, that means it's more abundant. Not le- you know, If you're right. running out of something, it price right, rises. Right. If, it's, if it becomes more abundant, then its price falls. So they made this famous bet. It was covered on the New York Times front page story. And sure enough, 10 years later, um, not only did the composite index of those five resources fall in price, but every one of them fell. And that made Julian really famous because he, uh, he had uh, you know, beaten this famous – professor who had been a best-selling author. And Julian was really, um, the, what happened was Julian, Ronald Reagan loved Julian's um, ideas because, you know, we believe in 
um, the people are assets, not liabilities. The more people create, we are net creators of resources as human beings, not right. we always leave every generation or at least hopefully better off. And so Julian got a job um, at the Heritage Foundation uh, to, you know, to uh, expose these myths about um you know, human beings causing all this pollution and stuff. And that's how I got to heritage. And that's how I got my start in, in politics. And I've, I've been really lucky in my life because I think of my mentors and I've been like so blessed. I mean, Julian Simon, who was, you know, they should have a statue of Julian. And then I knew I, uh, uh, Milton Friedman kind of took me under his wing. Really? Milton was a big libertarian too, obviously. And I was had been doing some work at Cato Institute. So Jul- Milton Friedman and I uh, became really good friends. Now, at that time, he was in his late 80s, so he was getting up right. there in age. But, you know, I still think but of what that a great mentor. Cool. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that, does it? Yeah. And then I think I like the, watching his old videos. Oh, those some are of these videos from like the 60s, Fantastic. when he starts talking about inflation yep. and what causes inflation and don't let anybody fool you that only government creates inflation. Yeah, he did. And he was was the one who said, you know, inflation is too many dollars chasing too few goods. And he was right about that. And I remember one of my, this is kind of a cool thing, Jason, too, that I used to call Milton because at the end of his life, he was at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. So he lived in San Francisco. And of course, his famous book, as you know, I'm sure you read it, it was called Free to Choose. And that became a mega bestseller. And it was, everybody should read Free to Choose. Uh, When I'd call him up and I'd say, hey, you know, uh, Milton, I'm going to be in, um, you know, San Francisco. Would you and Rose, Rose Friedman, his wife, who was the co-author of a lot of his great books, would you guys like to have dinner? You know, and most of the time he'd say, sure, you know. And so it was so cool. Like four or five of us would get together. We'd just sit there and talk to Milton Friedman for two hours. And here's my thing, Jason. I'm so – I wish I had taken like a tape recorder and recorded those – discussions because he was just so – he's a fountain of wisdom. And by the way, Rose Friedman was to the right of Milton. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's how hardcore she was. Uh, so that was cool. And then my uh, – you know, another mentor that I had, uh, and again, I'm just so lucky in my life, was Bill, uh, Bill Buckley, William wow. Buckley. And um, Buckley was just – Oh my God! I mean, how did really, you meet him through Heritage? Through National Review. National Review. You know, and yeah. he likes the stuff I was writing on economics, and uh, I started. Well, you and I did that cruise. Remember, for yes. was it Media Research Center that yes. sponsored that through Alaska, yes. which was fun. But I used to do all the time these National Review cruises, and um, Buckley used to come on those cruises, and you know, you could just go up and talk to him. And uh, I mean, Buckley was one of the most brilliant people I ever met. And I, he used to write like, write me little notes. And that was back when people would actually write notes, not right, just right, email, right. you know. Yeah. And it was just maybe be like four or five sentences, but it was like poetry. Everything that guy wrote, he was, yeah, the, the his command dis- of the English language. Which, well, his distinctive voice and the right. cadence. Yeah. I mean, you can, if you've heard it, you can hear it in your head now. Exactly. It's just. So, uh, so that was cool. So I've had, you know, good, good uh, mentors and people who've really taught me. Good. I can't think of a better set of mentors along the way. You're listening to Jason in the house. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Steve Moore right after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. 
Like, why do you, why, what made you so conservative? Because yeah, a lot of kids you know, grow up, right? And they, mm-hmm. they have a, some liberal tendencies. And it's usually later in life when they kind of, you know, yeah. get married and get a paycheck that they start so, getting. But you were a little bit more in your core. <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up, my formative years were in the 1970s. You're, as a, you're a little bit, your parents years probably more like the 80s. But the 70s was a disaster for the country. I mean, it was like a mini depression. I remember, you know, you think inflation's bad now? Yeah. I mean, we had 11, 12% inflation back then. You couldn't get a job anywhere. There were no jobs. You know, it was just yeah. an awful economy. I mean, we had Nixon, Ford, and Carter. The, the, that whole period was just so god awful. And I remember thinking, like, what's wrong with our country? It just felt like things were getting worse yeah. every day. And uh, I realized, you know, that it was uh, it was the failure of the welfare state, you know, just this massive growth of government that started under, you know, LBJ and then Nixon and Ford and Carter and worse and worse and worse. I mean, by the way, that period from 1970 to 1980, the stock market lost half its value adjusted for inflation. I mean, one of the most ferocious bear markets. Wow. So you could just almost feel every day the malaise. Remember, uh, Jimmy Carter yeah. gave a very famous speech about the malaise. And that's how everybody felt. And I just felt like the wheels were coming off and there was something wrong with America. So in other words, yeah. what I'm saying is I saw firsthand, because I lived through it, the failure of big government. And then, of course, the first politician I got interested in was Ronald Reagan. And yeah. like so many people... Um, I'll never forget being in my college dorm room in uh, in like October of 1980, and there was this very, very famous debate between Carter and Reagan. And at the time, I had not been political. You know, I didn't I didn't really pay that much attention to politicians. But I watched this debate and, and everything that was said at that era about Reagan. He's a warmonger. You know, we're going to have a nuclear war if Reagan is president. He only cares about rich people, all of these things. So that's what I thought about Reagan because that's all I had heard yeah. about him. Yeah. Well, I watched that debate and I had an epiphany, you know, and it was a famous debate. And I remember thinking, I agree with everything he just said. You yeah. know, everything he said, I agree on. Maybe I'm a Republican, you know. And so that really changed did you my... Ever, did you ever meet Reagan? Oh, yeah. I met him twice. And, you know, he was larger than life, had a great, great, great sense of humor. And I, I just really adored the guy. And, um, you know, he just restored the faith in America, right? Yeah. I mean, among yeah. all his other virtues. Uh, I mean, the, the change from when Reagan came into office, when we were in a depression, and how great things were, you know, over that, you know, by the first year and a half under Reagan was a tough period. It took a long time for his policies to really Right. kick in. Right. But boy, when they kicked in, we just had the biggest boom ever. So I, you know, my early recollections, and I, I'm not paying a lot of attention to politics, but like my dad um, had this little um, rule at our Chaffetz household. That is when my younger brother, Alex. And How I many got, brothers and sisters do you have? So I have a, a younger brother, Alex. Yeah. I have an older half brother, but yeah. I, I, but my younger brother and Alex, you know, I've really grew up together and dad every day when I'd get there for breakfast, he would make breakfast for us. <laughs> he would, the only thing we were allowed to do is look at the newspaper. <laughs> and so first it started with the funnies and then, you know, it started getting to the sports page, learn to read a box score. But yeah. then I'd read the whole, you know, uh-huh. really look through the paper. And they, 
So I had a, a sense of the news, and we would watch 60 Minutes on yeah. Sundays. Oh, we did all the, all the But actually, of, back then, back 60 then Minutes was, wasn't so yeah. bad. But now it's terrible. The whole Patty Hearst thing right. I remember <laughs> watching. It's like, oh, my goodness, that scares me. And uh, Charles Manson stuff was going on. But um, but I remember you know how bad it was. We were a well-to-do family, but it, it was bad. My, my dad, I think, had a 10 or 11% mortgage on the house. He later told me and um but reagan instilled this confidence this uh peace through strength this this uh this kind of commanding confidence that jimmy carter bless his heart just did not have right right, right. and 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 is but it was later in life you know when i learned to read and write um that i i recognized that gosh i'm actually a i'm a conservative and ronald reagan had a chance to meet him and spent two days as he kind of spent some wow. time in Utah. Now, was that after? Yeah, it was, it was after. It was in 1991. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but boy, I was just like, I just really agree with him. And it's uh-huh. a whole approach to life and philosophy and uh, everything else. It really was impactful for me. Yeah, let me just say something about this because you're hitting an important point. Um, Reagan was about love of country, among yeah. other things. Yeah. And one of the things I found really, really disturbing about the this latest generation, and it's not their fault, it's our fault, but we need in this country a new patriotism. I really believe. I you know, totally we, agree. You know, this is, totally and I think agree. that should be really part of the Republican message that this is the greatest country on earth. As Reagan, you know, I love re- you know Reagan reading Reagan's speeches. Because there are just all these kernels of wisdom in them. And uh, he had great speechwriters, but he also wrote a lot of the, you know, on his note cards, he'd write a lot of them himself. You know, tear down this wall came from Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, his his, his advisors didn't want him to say, him to say it. Yeah. <laughs> and he did. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, he, I think, I think it was in his, um, one of, I think it might have been his inauguration speech, but he said, that it is divine providence that has put America here as a beacon of freedom for the rest of the world. And that, yeah. I believe that. I believe that it, it is divine providence that we're here, that that God had a special message and, and mission for this country. And um, I, it sickens me to see, do we have stains in our past? Of course we do. We're human beings. We're not, we have the, yeah. you know, uh, Jim Crow laws and slavery and, you know, the treatment of the Indians. Of course, yeah, those were horrible things. But the kids today are just learning about the horrors of America and not the greatness of America. And it's just – they're not – you know, if you look at the polls, if the polls are accurate, there is not – they don't think that America is a special place, young people. And the reason they don't is because that's what their schools have taught them, Yeah, you know, and it's sickening. What country – has their kids in school and the teachers telling them how bad their country is. No one else does that. So along the way, you're taught and mentored by some of the best out there. You've mm-hmm. become um, a really important voice in expressing the challenges and putting into context. I love it when you're out there with a, you know some liberal Democrat and you get to debate them a little bit because you have this mastery of the numbers that they can't just fake their way through it. You can call their bluff on it. Um, you know, I had fun. Let me just interrupt you for one second. You know, I had fun. Um, well, it was kind of fun. <laughs> After Trump got elected, I decided not to go into the White House with him, you know, because Larry Kudlow and I had worked right. as, you know, as kind of advisors. And I thought, you know, I could probably have more influence w- with him if I don't work for him rather than if I do, you know. So 
I'd go over and see him maybe once a month or two every two months in the Oval Office. But I could tell him what I, you know, because I didn't work for him. I could, right? You know, I could tell yeah. him what I wanted, to, whatever I wanted to. But um, what what I was going to say about this is that um, you know Trump also had that love for America, and there's look st- in terms of their personalities, they were very different in their style. But I've always said that Trump and Reagan had a lot of similarities, and one of them was love of country. Mm-hmm. A second was they were always – both Reagan and Trump, it's so ironic. Both of them were always underestimated by their political opponents. Yeah. So when Reagan was running for president, the left was rolling over laughing. Big time for Bonzo. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know? Oh, this is a grade B actor. He's going to be president. Oh, that's never going to happen. Sure. The same thing they said about Trump. Uh, and and the third, but thing at least is, you know Reagan had been governor of California, exactly. right? Yeah, you, know? yeah. you would think that would count for something, right? Yeah. That it's hard to believe, isn't it, that California had a governor like Ronald Reagan? I mean, think about oh, California. I today. watched one of these old old television shows, and they're joking about how conservative California is. And it, <laughs> you look back on that, and you just think, what happened? Yeah, what happened? It went off the rails. But anyway, yeah, but they do have some similarities. They do, but. Um, you know, your voice in that. What, what do you think, Steve? What do you think? Oh, I, I'm sorry. What I was going to say, yeah. I've kind of lost my train of thought. So after Trump won, uh, CNN came a calling and they offered me this big contract to go over to CNN because they, it turned out they didn't have any, you know, they thought Hillary was going to win. Shocking. So all of a sudden they needed to. So, you know, it pained me because I love Fox and I had a Fox contract. I said, okay, I'm going to give this a try. So for two years, I was over at CNN. And first of all, People forget that – do you know what they talked about every single night for the first two years of Trump's presidency? The Russia collusion hoax. Oh, yeah. Every single night. Yeah. I mean not yeah. – sometimes. That was the whole story for two years, which tells you a lot about the media. They spent two years on a completely falsified story. Right. It, it just annoys me. So, look, Trump is not perfect by any means. I cringe sometimes with his – what he says and some of his antics. But – has there ever been a president in modern time has been more tr- mistreated by the media than Donald Trump? Oh, they have given him the a political enema like it's nobody else. Unbelievable. And and yet and then they were so wrong. I mean, they they've were. been trying to get this guy since the moment he descended on that golden escalator. Right. And on false information. I mean, just yeah. bogus information. And yeah. all the people who said I've seen it firsthand. I mean, I wish they'd be called out, called to the carpet. I haven't seen a whole lot of apologies, though, over at CNN. <laughs> yeah. Why don't – instead of, you know, yeah. filing for his arrest, why don't they just apologize? But in any case, when I would do these CNN interviews, it would – I'm not exaggerating. It would be me and four liberals. So it would be one against right, right, four. Right. And the good thing is they don't know anything. <laughs> so yeah. it was like – it was not a fair fight because, yeah. you know, I knew what I was talking about. And all they were doing was reading off of their – you know, you know how the left is. They just read off of their scripts that, yeah. you know, these groups. So I'll never forget one of my favorite moments was when Trump – one of the, Trump's greatest decisions was pulling the United States out of that anti-America uh, Paris Climate Accord. Right. Thing, which was right. just an awful deal. And and so they, we were on for about two hours and they were talking about how horrible – but they didn't have any idea what they were talking about. And I said, look, we get 75 percent of our energy from fossil fuels. We can be the world economic leader in energy production and think of what that means for our country and – they were just – they were like talking about oh, windmills and solar panels. And so it was just fun to see how uh, – look, people say, oh, you're so, you know, 
that these ideas are common sense, Jason. You don't have to have a PhD in economics to understand how an economy works and how people function. You know, uh, I met, forgot to mention my fourth mentor, or maybe one of the most important, certainly one of the most important in my life now in terms of my career is Arthur Laffer. And oh, people yeah. used to laugh at Laffer. You know, oh, my God, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The Reagan tax cuts will never work. Well, you know, he is another one who I, I have great admiration for people who take on the conventional wisdom right. like Julian Simon did and Laffer did. And they really changed the world. And so all I'm saying is um, I don't feel like the things I say are profound. They're just common sense. Where did it come from, Steve, that your ability to articulate it? Now, a lot of people are smart on numbers. They're brilliant on economics. But to try to get him to explain it in 30 seconds, that's a really hard skill set. I that... think the person who really had, that's where Laffer really, you know, Laffer is a great, probably the, I'd say one of the two or three most uh um, famous economist in the world, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. Arthur Laffer. I mean, clearly, you know, what he, he did yeah. with Reagan, yeah. And was, Reagan and Trump, and he's yeah. had a huge impact around the world. And yeah. so, but Laffer is also a great communicator. And I realized from just being around Arthur, if you really want to succeed in changing people's hearts and minds about these economic issues, you better learn how to communicate the ideas. Yeah. Uh, you know, most, what's the old saying, you know, that, um, Economists are people who are good with numbers, uh, but don't have quite the personality of an accountant. Right. You know, so most economists are boring. Yeah. I mean, right. oh, amen to that. When most people, um, when I tell people I'm an economist, the first thing people say is, "Oh, I took an economics course in high school and I hated it because they make it so boring." And they, you know, it's it's really when you get into it, it's a it's actually a very lively subject if you teach it the right way. If you teach it the right way and yeah. under, it, it turn, in, you know, internalize it and. Yeah. My brother Alex, he, um, you know, he 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 got his degree in economics, and it served him so well. He, you know, he, everybody's not going to be an economist, but any basic principle in business and everything else, you can apply that that skill set. What what do you think he would have done if you hadn't got into it? So that's a really good story too. So when I graduated, I, as I said, I was like literally a B and C student in in grade school and high school, and. Um, so uh, my mom used to always uh, kid me that I was in the the uh, pokey group. That, that that's before, you know it would be so politically incorrect now to have something called the pokey group. And I was in the pokey group, probably yes. <laughs> and so my mom would always say, you know, you, she'd say, Stephen, you've done pretty well for a kid who was in the pokey group. But um, anyway, um, so I remember. So I did, but in college I became like an A student. I mean, I became totally obsessed. It was like. Night and day. In fact, well, I was found kind your of passion. Yeah. yeah, I became passionate about it, and so yeah. I, you know, got really good grades. And I, I, I was studying business. I wanted to, you know, make a lot of money. And I got this was 1982, the very depths of the worst economy ever. Where even with a college graduate, you couldn't even find a job as a burger flipper. I mean, it was terrible back then. And I got the, but the most prize, one of the most prized jobs you could get was General Electric had a management training program yeah. that people went yeah. through that, you know, they were, you know, they became yeah. millionaires. And, you know, I got a job offer from uh, them and they offered me, I'll never forget this. They offered me a, a salary of $34,000. Now back in 1982, yeah. a $34,000 job was And coming out of school? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. And so, uh, but then I remember talking to Julian Simon before I was leaving and I, he, I said, um, he said to me, what, what do you think you're going to do? I said, I got this incredible job offer, you know, with general, 
electric. He said, well, Steve, that's great. You know, if you want to do that. But he said, you know, I just got a job as a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. If you want to come to Washington with me, I'll pay you $1,000 a month. Now think about $34,000 or $12,000. Yeah, no kidding. So, uh, you know, I thought I'm really more interested in, in, and, you know, I made that decision. You know, sometimes you come in those, you know, and I don't, I've never really regretted it, you know, and and I think it was the right thing to do. But sometimes I do think, gosh, I'd be so rich today (laughs) if I had done that program in in, GE. But uh, no, I don't have any regrets about that. That's and by the way, there's a lesson there for people. I always say, you know, I elect young people, do what you love. Yeah. You know, do what you love. Because if you do it, what you love, you're going to be good at it. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you could. I, I mean, I wanted to be a pro football quarterback, but that, right. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. But I mean, too many people just go, oh, well, this job pays more than that. No, get on the path that you want where you have the right. passion and you will, uh, you know, probably. Especially when you're young and you have some flexibility, you exactly. can live on, you know, top ramen meals and, 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 you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And in my life, it's been these little instances like that that have yeah. changed the trajectory of my right. life uh, along the way. And it's a, it's important to try something else. And yeah. And and the other lesson is whatever you do, excel at it. Yeah. You know, if you're going to go do it, you, you know, might as well be the best there yeah, is. If yeah. you're going to do it, do it and be the best. Yeah. I mean, and so. And you usually know, it's been my experience that you... You have to do the work before they actually give you the the job that you want. Mm-hmm. Like people always say, hey, well, you know, if they would promote me and pay me this, then I would do that kind of level of work. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that Show way. Show me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then it has to become to the point of, well, it's inevitable they're going to do it because they're so good at it. Yeah. So, um that don't be don't be average, you know. I mean, this no matter what you're certainly in, don't you know? want to strive to be average. That's yeah, for sure. Right. You know, and and uh, so. Put it in the I, this work is what was funny when I was working with, you know, trying to, the, when I was chairman of the oversight committee in the House of Representatives, we had jurisdiction over uh, the federal workforce. And I, 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 and I, there was this analysis we did. We wanted to find out how many federal workers got a bonus. And mm-hmm. um, the justification was that the number was 70%. Yeah. So 70% of the federal workers got a bonus. And I said, well, how do you justify that? Yeah, like, right. what's the right. return on investment? Why do you do it? And I said, well, we only give it to people who have an at, above average um, accomplishments. And I, so I said, so 70% of the people are above average. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> and like, they didn't get it. Yeah. They were like, really? So Jason, I was just, uh, so funny you should mention that because- one of my big projects right now is we're just trying to get school choice done in every state, including Utah, by the way. And yeah, Utah yeah. is moving in that direction, strides, but, but, but not yeah. as fast as we'd like. Right. But, but um, so, as I mentioned, I'm from Chicago, and it's uh, it's painstaking to see what's happening in that country. But um, there was a analysis that was recently done of all the um, – so only about one out of three kids in the public schools in Illinois – is reading or writing or doing arithmetic at grade level proficiency, mm. which is a dis- total disgrace. So it's sad. child abuse. What's happening in these public schools? Yeah, and so, th- so that's one statistic to keep in your mind. One out of three is performing a grade level proficiency, but ninety six percent of the teachers are rated as good or great. Yeah, <laughs> how, how does that add up? Right, they're doing such a great job. Yeah. All right. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Steve Moore right after this. We're talking with Steve Moore. 
Um, but Steve, before we let you go, we got to give you some rapid questions. Okay. I'm Just ready. to kind of get ready. to know Strapping you a little bit in my better. Seat. Yes, he's strapped in, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, things to just kind of illuminate who you are a little bit. Um, they're hard questions, though. Okay. So. I don't care how many briefings you've given a president. This is first concert you attended. Gosh, uh, I think that would be. Oh, I saw um, Carol King. Carol King, and That'd I be good. love Carol King. She I has so many it. hits. She's, she wrote this, the songboat of the 1970s. I mean, she's written so many. Oh yeah, it's and it was just awesome. You she's know, kind so. of a liberal activist is on she, Capitol Hill. Don't tell me that because I love her music. But, but her music is is spectacular. Yeah, so that was so yeah. fun. Uh, totally. Uh, uh, what was your high school mascot? The Indians. Very politically incorrect. The Nutrier Indians. <laughs> Are they still and, the Indians? And do you of think? course, they're not the Indians anymore. Yeah. They're now the Trevians. <laughs> they're the what? The Trevians. And I don't even know what a Trevian. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. and, Trumpians, and, really? No. And by I the way, Trumpians. you know, I went to uh, University of Illinois. I mentioned that, and uh, back then we had a um, our mascot was the uh, the fight in the line, fight in the line, right? and there was a chief Illinois, and at halftime of the football and basketball games, there was this big um, to do where the uh, a student would would win the award to be the chief Illinois, and he would come out in full regalia. Right. And he would dance uh, like an Indian dance, and it was people would go crazy. I mean, it was like right. whoa, people would whoop it up, and and then we, he'd stand there in the middle of the field, and we'd sing the alma mater, you know, and it was very respectful, you know, and it was actually a celebration of our Indian heritage. Yeah, and yet these idiot liberal activists got rid of. Um, Chief Alinewick, you know, uh, and so, so even like today, 30 years later, people go, chief, 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 they want chief to come out. And that was, remember Paul Simon, the liberal uh, right. senator from Illinois? He was the one who, who said, we got to get rid of Chief Alinewick. So there were all these bumper stickers in, around my neighborhood that said, uh, keep Alinewick, dump Simon. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway. it's sad that we get it. I think it's, it's an honor. It's, it's just uh it's done with respect and by the way, it wasn't the Indian tribes that were against it. No, it was the liberal activists. Amen to that. It's such a, anyway. Um, so what was your first job when you, when you not mom and dad saying, Hey Steve, take out the garbage. I mean, your very first, I'm going to get a paycheck from somebody else. I worked at a factory for, um, you know, where you'd fill orders, you know, um, yeah. and it was like a mail order thing. So people would say, I want this, 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 this. And you, you, what you'd do is you'd take a cart and you walk down the aisles and you'd like, oh, this guy wants three of these, four of those. Yeah, and then yeah, you yeah. put them in the boxes. And I think about that a lot because um, I think one of the really big mistakes we make with young people, getting young people to work and get a job at the earliest possible age is a great thing. When I was at the Wall so Street true. Journal, yeah. you know, I was always struck, you know, we'd meet the people who were very, you know, pinnacle of their professions, whether it was music, art, finance, you know, business, da, da, da. And I'd always ask them at these ed, ed, ed board meetings, how'd you get your start? Where'd you grow up? And I was always struck by how many of these really successful people grew up on a farm. Now, why is that interesting? Because if you work in a farm like my wife did, you're working at seven years old. You're cleaning out the stables, you know. You know how and to work. So, you work hard. Yeah. Exactly. And they had they got that work ethic. And the one thing I learned from working in that warehouse, I don't want to work in a warehouse my right. whole life. Right? <laughs> I learned that at an early age. And so that really inspires you to – so I don't – 
I think, you know, in college, I think college kids, my solution to the college, um, you know, tuition crisis, every kid should work 15 or 20 hours a week and just pay for their own tuition. And by the way, the kids would be much better off if they did that. Yeah, I this, they are to be like an the apprentice. College being free is a terrible idea. Apprentice type wage. I think we do. I think we miss. You know, I started working when I was about fourteen, uh-huh. and kind of had to, well, maybe fudge a little bit about my actual age because you're supposed to be sixteen, right? But you know, back but you're then, tall, it's, so it's, you, you didn't you, care. They, yeah, they didn't, right. you know, and nobody was really checking. And my dad was good with it, and so. But we miss that opportunity to teach people the value of a dollar and to learn to work. And it's sort of like when they, uh, you know, I did this with each of our kids and they had to go get jobs and it didn't really matter how much they were making. Exactly. And then they bring home their paycheck and like, wait a sec, I calculated out my hours and I multiplied it and how come I got so much less? That's when you learn, oh, well, these are called taxes and you have to pay them. (laughs) And, you know, how do you like it now? How do you like big government now? What what did I get for my taxes? (laughs) Well, you know, and it's just enlightening that way. Uh, Do you have a pet growing up? Well, we always had dogs. We have a dog now and, you know, man's best friend. What kind of dog dog do you have? What's that? What kind of dog? Always mutts. Mutts. Oh, good for you. We had a mutt. Her name, the name was Socks, and he was he was a great dog, but he was definitely a mutt, hundred percent. Our dog big was named mutt. Boozer. Big one. He was a big size mutt. That's for certain. Um, all right. So if you could invite one person over, just to, hey, guess what, family? Uh, we got a special guest tonight, dead or alive. Anybody in history, come over and visit with them. The more family and just break bread and have a discussion, who would you pick? Oh, my God. (laughs) Such a tough question. I think John Lennon. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge, huge, massive Beatles fan. And if it's somebody alive, if I could meet anybody, it would be Paul McCartney, no question about it. Oh, Sir Paul Paul McCartney? I would love You know what? I just and by got, the way, that's a very common answer to that question. <laughs> no, no, because a hundred years from now, people will be listening to the Beatles' music. I mean, and it is it, timeless. The documentaries about how they wrote, oh god, are just fascinating, really, and they really did change the world. They did, and you know, the thing that's kind of cool about Paul McCartney in particular is he went through a a four year stage from around 1966 to 1970 when he wrote like 20 number one hit songs like Hey Jude, you know, Long yeah, and Winding Road, da, 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 just get back. And I find it really fascinating genius and how, you know, you go through this stage where you just can't, you know, everything you wrote just became, and that, that's pretty true in almost every profession. People go through these, whether it's science or whatever about this I heard scientific a, genius. I heard a great story about Paul McCartney and not to belabor this, but I just, my wife and I just were able to go see uh, Donny Osmond in, in Vegas? Las Vegas. Yeah. Okay. Was it good? Loved it. Okay. Absolutely I love it. loved right. it. You know, was it, was it Donny and Marie or just No, Donnie? it was just Donny. Okay. He has his own show yeah. there at Harris. And um, he has this about 12 minutes where I think he calls it uh, rapography. Mm-hmm. And Julie and I were very fortunate. He invited us backstage, oh, and we got fun. to visit for yeah. like twenty minutes with him. Oh, I don't want to yeah. okay. characterize his <laughs> okay, political, but we got along just great. <laughs> okay. So we had a uh, we had a really good discussion, and I told him, and I said, Donnie, that that what he did over the last six decades yeah. was just absolutely phenomenal, yeah. and it, he raps it the whole time in in a rap format, and it is. He did this, and then he did this, and he did this. It's unbelievable. But the funny thing about Paul McCartney, the tie here that, that sparked that memory is 
they asked Paul McCartney one time, is there anybody you want to meet? And he kind of, you know, didn't really, you know, he's pretty much <laughs> he's met, met everybody. everybody yeah. want to meet. Uh, but they said, have you ever gotten somebody's autograph? And he tells this story I saw in video where he said, I actually did get somebody's autograph and I was staying at a hotel. He was with his daughter and Donnie Osmond was in the hotel. And he said he did something that he doesn't like when people do it to him. But he said, I literally went up to his door, knocked on the door and said, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I would like to... Did you ask Donny Osmond about that? So when I was with Donnie, I said, I heard this story this from Paul McCartney. Yeah. And uh, and I said, I mean, the idea that That's Paul true. McCartney knocked on your door. <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, no, that really did happen. I wasn't expecting it. The door, you know, why are people knocking on my door? So I went and got it. So I was just wearing like, you know, pants and a, and a T-shirt. And his daughter was there and I signed this autograph. I said, well, did you get Paul McCartney's autograph? <laughs> and he was sort Very of like, funny. no, not really. But <laughs> I just thought, all right, it, 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 what an incredible Career. talent. Anyway, all right, we got off beat a little bit here. A couple other real quick questions. Okay. Pineapple and pizza, yes or no? No, 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 okay, no, good. no, we no, knew no, Steve no, no. Was I don't like the Hawaiian pizza. Good, good, good. good. Uh, uh, last, <laughs> last question. Best advice you ever got? Um. You know, I think it was from my dad who just – I had been going through a tough time and I'll, for, I'll never forget. He said, Steve, the most important thing is integrity. And it's yeah, true. That's integrity. good. Yeah. That's uh, it's very poignant. I yeah. think that and makes he, a lot you know, of sense. He, and this was, you know, about, he died about 10 years after, but, you know, he gave me the greatest compliment in life. He said, Steve, you have integrity, which yeah. was, you know, meant a lot to me. It ties a lot. That, that's, that ties it all together. Well, thanks for joining us. I, I love fun. working with you, interacting <laughs> you with you. And when you start speaking about the economy and numbers, I am, for one, am listening. Oh and I know well, millions nice are. And you, you're making, having a huge impact on the way people think about things. And I think that's, you know, news breaks or somebody has this idea or introduces a budget. Part of what I love watching is how should I think about this? How should I view it? What are the the most important points? And you have this job, this immense talent on being able to cut to the nub of the issue as to what's really important. Well, so. I'll write to you, my, back to you, my friend. And, you know, your service in Congress and also, you know, what you're doing now with Fox News is, um, you know, educating a whole generation. Oh, I love people. it. I love it's, doing it. So. It is. Well, thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. I appreciate it. Thank so. you. Now, thanks for joining us, giving us part of your time. Uh, please rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. I think you'll like it. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, and I really do appreciate listening. Um, I want to remind people that you can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Uh, you can also go over to Fox News Podcast Network at foxnewspodcast.com, foxnewspodcast.com. A lot of my colleagues have good... Uh, Good shows out there from Trey Gowdy to Brett Baer to Shannon Bream to uh, Will Kane. There's there's a lot of good stuff out there. So, uh, again, hope you can like it, you can rate it, you can review it. And we'll be back with more next week. I hope you join us. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.